It is believed that the fame of Enheduanna has echoed through the ages. Her hymns continue to be copied in tablet schools to this day, and even today, we continue to be touched by the emotionally charged tone of her prayers to the goddess Inanna. There is so much interest in how this woman looked and what kind of life she had confined to the Gipar within the temple complex that the discovery of an actual image of this priestess was a significant bit of luck for archaeologists. The Gipar, the residence of the on priestess in the temple complex of the moon goddess Nana, was also discovered by Wooly when he was excavating the royal graves at Ur. It can be assumed that Enheduanna had lived there at some point in the past. However, because Woolley's Gippar dated from the second millennium, it was here in 1927 that Woolley made his extraordinary discovery. The debris of the Gippar contained pieces of a limestone disc, which, according to Woolley, had been deliberately trampled into the ground and thrown away. The disc depicts three figures pouring libations from a spouted vessel on top of a standard with flowers growing behind a nude temple officer. A priestess in a Kaunake's cape stands behind the temple servant on the disc. In the same way, the woman on the Uruk vase held her hand up to her nose to pay her respects. She wears a tall, conical hat with a rolled brim, and her hair hangs over her shoulders in loose curls. Inexpertly restored discs resulted in low, square caps instead of conical hats. A stepped edifice in front of which the figures are depicted also appears unauthentic, with the reconstructed disc giving it the appearance of a ziggurat, which is no surprise since Ur was famous for the moon god's ziggurat during the second millennium. Furthermore, whether this building was originally depicted on the disc is doubtful. A temple facade is most likely to be seen by the four people. There is an inscription engraved on the reverse side of the disc that makes it stand out. Despite the heavy damage to the text, Sumerologists have been able to decipher the name Enheduanna, Enheduanna, N, the ornament of heaven, or N, the ornament of An, and scholars have reconstructed the lines as follows, Enheduanna, the true woman, Sal Nunus Dizi, of Nana, the spouse, Dam of Nana, daughter of Sargon, king of Ki, erected a table in the temple of Inanazar of Ur and named it the offering table of heaven. Enheduanna endowed the temple of Inanazar with a table or throne in memory of her gift. Inanazar had a temple at Mari in the third millennium, so she named it the Table of Heaven, or Table of Anu. Inanna and Nana, the supreme gods she was responsible for, constantly walked a political tightrope with opposing interests. According to Enheduanna's disc, the goddess Inanna had a special significance for her father, Sargon, king of Akkad, and his daughter, Enheduanna, and grandson, Naram S. Also evident in her hymns, is that Enheduanna felt compelled to defend Inanna from the claims made by Nana's priests in Ur. Due to her high office, Enheduanna's history would likely have been preserved. Seals have been discovered in the cemetery of Ur, originating from people who served Enheduanna in the temple, such as a scribe, her superintendent, and a certain Dirpalil, who calls himself her son, Dumuni. As an priestess was not permitted to have children, perhaps the word son should be considered metaphorically to express his devotion to Enheduanna. Having been a princess of high rank, it is unlikely that she was married. Upon her death, she would adopt a son to handle her funeral, since the successors of an on-priestess would handle this. However, it cannot be ruled out that son could be translated, since there are other texts in which an on-priestess is said to have given birth to a son. King Sargon is said to have been born to a high priestess, 
and King Iblul Il of Mari is said to have been born to a nin. He also praised his mother for raising him as an end priestess's son in a laudation. A male official of this title, the N of Inanna, was introduced to us. The beloved husband of the goddess Inanna was the city ruler of Uruk. When Sargon founded his dynasty and called himself King Lugal, a title that placed him above Sumer's local city rulers, the unruler's position came under pressure. King Sargon claimed power over the nation, whereas the N were relegated to their local domains. Whether the on priestess represented the female counterpart of the on ruler depicted on the Uruk vase in his long net skirt remains to be discovered. And priestesses, who called themselves the consorts of gods, share similarities with the male unruler. In addition, on priestesses were the human consorts of male gods, and en rulers were consorts of goddesses. On priestesses were permanently appointed as consorts for a particular god, just like en rulers. By leaving a sign in the entrails of the young sheep sacrificed, the god chose their on priest or en priestess. Since Sargon's time, the daughter of the ruling king has been continuously elected as en priestess. The barren priests interpreted that augury, but the king had some input. The priestess of En also possessed the same insignia as the ruler of En. For instance, she had a throne, a carrying chair, and a scepter. She even shared much of the ruler's outward appearance. We have seen depictions of On priestesses wearing the Kaunaki's mantle and a turban with a fillet. They also wore the same headdress as On rulers, the men, or Aga, crowns. The En priestess's headdress can also be seen on cylinder seals with this hat of the On ruler. The end priestess wore it with a golden diadem as early as the second millennium. Tutanapsum may sit on the throne of an end priestess. She was an end priestess of the god Enlil in Nippur and the daughter of Naram-Sin. Other gods had a human spouse at their disposal during the Akkadian period, including Enheduanna. Several characteristics specific to an end priestess can be seen on the seal depicting her image. Her hair hangs loosely on her shoulders, a characteristic of on priestesses and she wears a Kaunake's mantle, which resembles the hat worn by the woman on the Uruk vase. An object, perhaps a lyre, hangs from a female servant's hand in front of Tutanapum behind a tree. Irene Winter suggests that we find an image of an on priestess on a votive plaque, also found in the sacred residence of the on priestess, the Gipar, at Ur. Even though it dates from before the Akkad dynasty, it is a much older example. A limestone disc depicting Enheduanna in the Ur Cemetery can be found next to the terracotta relief divided into two registers. An exterior view of a building shows an unclothed male pouring a libation from a spouted vessel into a date palm stand. A man stands behind three figures in front of a temple facade. There may also be an offering, a lamb, or a kid between the two figures. A woman in the forefront is depicted in full frontal posture wearing the same rolled-brim conical headdress beneath which her hair is loosely slung. During the upper register, a libation is poured before a deity seated on a throne of great size, suggesting his importance. All three people standing behind the nude male wear thick mantles, their hair hanging loosely over their shoulders, and they all wear wide-brimmed hats. The terracotta relief has a hole in the center for fastening a plaque to a wall. Assuming that this terracotta relief depicts an on priestess, she is shown standing in front of the temple of the moon god Nana on the lower and upper reliefs, surrounded by the moon god himself, whose crown resembles a crescent-shaped divine horn crown. In her disc, 
Enheduanna occupies the same position as Enheduanna and oversees the process rather than actually pouring the libation. Irene Winter recognized an on priestess from the early dynastic period on a cylinder seal. A woman in a cape and wide-brimmed hat stands before a long-haired man holding a spouted vessel. A temple facade is depicted before them, along with a seated deity whose feet are a pair of bulls or calves. Animals associated with the moon god Nana, whose name is often preceded by the description Bull. His horn crown is also shaped like a crescent, while the unpriestess wears the typical cap with a rolled brim, her hair loose. It is not a nude temple servant this time. A vertical ram with construction on its back is also depicted on this seal. Woolley found a ram in the royal cemetery of Ur and named it Ram in a Thicket. It is difficult to determine whether or not specific female figurines from the third millennium are priestesses. Sometimes their hair hangs loosely and they wear a metal diadem, characteristics considered priestly insignia. It is possible to distinguish women outside the religious establishment based on appearance. While end priestesses were almost always represented seated on the ritual throne, secular women are typically shown standing upright with their hair. The Kaunaki's cloak was removed and replaced with woolen clothing. Women's clothes were standardized differently in the third millennium than Ur three images from the second millennium. Enheduanna referred to the gift of a table she had given to Inanazazi's temple on her disc. The female figurines in her temple were likely priestesses, as Inanazar was also known in Mari. As well as wearing the ritual Kaunaki's garment, they also wear a high conical hat, which appears to have special ritual significance. In the depiction of Enheduanna on her disc, the hat's rolled brim is reminiscent of her golden diadem and the hat she wears on her disc. A photograph taken before the disc was reconstructed during the restoration still shows this. Female figurines in Inanna's Mari temple hold date branches while sitting on thrones, possibly indicating their office as priestesses. Below the armrest of some chairs are carvings of bulls or oxen, perhaps symbolic of the presence of a god or goddess, often called strong bull or holy cow. It is famous that the thrones of the moon god are supported by carvings of bulls. It was customary for the statues to be carried out in the ritual Kaunaki's garment and seated on thrones with bull's legs while holding a scepter or date palm. In seals, the high priestess oversees the pouring of a libation by a male temple servant, whose hair is decorated with a metal fillet. Several seals show her as the dominant figure, but while many of these women probably performed the function of on priestesses, others might have been priestesses of a lower rank, such as the Nindinga priestesses. Some priestesses can be traced to the Akkadian and Sumerian periods of the third millennium, and even in the fourth millennium, several images represent the En and Nin. In addition to the Uruk vase, several cylinder seals on the Iana complex depict them performing religious acts. The Nin probably predated the later high-ranking N priestess. A collection of images of figurines and seals of women of high rank has been made by Julia Asher Grieve. These women act alone and are always depicted as central figures in religious ceremonies, indicating their special status. A stylized bull's leg is carved into the legs of the benches where the women sit. Asher Grieve concludes that these women must have been high-ranking priestesses since sitting on a throne was considered a sign of dignity. A seal also depicts a priestess seated on a bench supported by a carved bull's legs. Two large vessels and a crescent are in front of her. In the field, 
A man in a net skirt is shown feeding sheep with a flourishing branch in a posture of supplication or prayer, called the U-Il in the field. A man in a net skirt is shown feeding sheep with a flourishing branch in a posture of supplication or prayer, called the U-Il-La gesture. In his case, he wears a prickly headdress instead of the standard on-round cap. Two rosettes are depicted floating in the field behind him, appearing on the other side of the seal due to the impression in the clay. The goddess Inanna symbolized rosettes used to feed animals in the N. The seal features a long-haired woman sitting on a bench with legs resembling a bull's. One of the naked servants raises his hands in prayer as he walks towards her, holding a goblet. Another vase stands on the ground before him while he holds a spouted vase. The woman in this group is likely a high-ranking priestess because she is the only one seated. According to images, there were many high-ranking priestesses at the end of the Uruk period, circa 3400 BC, and even earlier. It is often depicted that they are seated on ceremonial couches, with one leg raised, and are at the center of ceremonial performances. Because they represent a god, priestesses receive the priest or ruler, perform liturgies, or receive drink and food offerings. Possibly she performs fertility rites with the N, and later N priestesses, including Enheduanna, may be her successors. Various scholars have been struck by the many women depicted on the cylinder seals, dating from the most ancient times, which far outnumber the depictions of females from later times. It is evident that these women played a leading role in the cult. Some appear at the top of the hierarchy. Despite this, women were marginalized in the third millennium, and even more so in the second millennium as urbanization and temple construction increased. The cities experienced new leaders who monopolized worldly and religious functions and focused on affairs far removed from the private domain, where women had played a central role. In the new public domain of the second millennium, women held less and less value, and the functions they had performed in the past were taken over by men. The temples also have fewer statues of women. During the second millennium BC, the office of on priestess had utterly disappeared, and gods no longer needed human spouses. Several titles retained by priestesses, such as Ugbabtum, Naditum, and Ishtaritum, have long lost their importance. A wedding ceremony is now performed exclusively by the god and his divine wife. The gods are represented by their statues, carefully maintained by temple staff. An on priestess was the consort of the most important gods of the pantheon, and made a lifelong commitment to live in the temple and perform the rituals necessary for their heavenly consort. Gipa, the official residence of the priests and priestesses of Inanna, is little known. With the help of the historical records of the Gitar's residences in Ur and information from a women's convent near the temple of Sippar, a city on the Euphrates River upstream of Ur, we will attempt to portray the life of the temple servants of Inanna in this chapter. Thousands of cuneiform tablets dating back to the beginning of the second millennium BC have been excavated, which should help us understand how temple cloister women lived. The unpriestess of Nana of Ur was highly respected in ancient times. This was when King Sargon appointed his daughter Enheduanna to the post during the time of Akkad. In addition to setting up a priestess of the moon god, see the list below, the most crucial post of the temple personnel in the so-called Gipar, the succeeding kings of the Ur III dynasty and Isin and Lhasa dynasties, also installed a king's daughter as the priestess of the moon god. Several seals belonging to servants of Enheduanna have been found in the cemetery of Ur.
Several seals belonging to servants of Enheduanna have been found in the cemetery of Ur, but we have also found seals belonging to a scribe and a messenger in the service of Enmenana, daughter of Naram-Sin. As soon as they entered the temple, the priestesses were given official names. Remarkably, all with one exception of the N priestesses of the moon god Nana in Ur included the name Anu in their cultic names, and stands for either heaven or the god An. She was a daughter of Sargon and a goddess of An heaven, Enhiduanna. In the year 2300, she was a daughter of Naram-Sin and referred to as En, the crown of An heaven. In the year 2170, En-Anipad-Da was born, the daughter of Obaba van Laga, who was discovered by An himself, heaven. The daughter of Onama, Ur III, Ennir al III and Na, En, great respect for An heaven, circa 2130, daughter of Ennirzi and Na, En, righteous trust from An heaven, circa 2100, Ulgi, Ur III. It was during the 2050s that Enmargalanna was mentioned as very exalted En by an heaven. She was the daughter of Amarsin, Ur III, daughter of Ibisin, Ur III, circa 2030, En Nir En, right trust by an heaven. She was the daughter of Isbi Era of Isin, the righteous Nin of an heaven, circa 2015. She continues to serve as a Gungunum under Lhasa's Gungunum Enanatumma, a title befitting an angel. She is the daughter of Ime Dagan of Isin, circa 1950. She is in a position fitting an angel of heaven. En Megalana, En, great mediator of Anu heaven, circa 1900. Daughter of Abisar of Lhasa, daughter of Enkia Diana, En, the beloved heart of Nana. In the south of the temple was the Gipar, where the En priestesses lived. God Ziggurat is this complex in the southeast corner of the moon, it had a rectangular inner yard and was enclosed by a courtyard. Priests may have carried the moon god's statue into this court at certain times of the year, giving citizens a chance to see him. 2. There was an original entrance to the temple called the E2 Dublama, house, the large platform. According to a hymn to the moon god Nana, this is where the gods decided what fate would await them. The Ganunma lay east of the court, with its many long storehouses. It was presumably here that Nana's treasure was kept safe. 79 by 76, 5 meters was the size of the Gipar of the On Priestesses of the Moon God. An immense wall surrounded the building, its corners oriented to the compass's cardinal points. There were three sections of the building, labelled by Woolley as Units A, B and C. Based on Woolley's discovery, the Gipar existed as early as the third millennium, perhaps during the time of Enheduanna. There was a connection between all the rooms and the inner courts of the Gipar. The priestesses lived in the temple of the moon goddess Ningal, the consort of the moon god, with whom they felt a particular affinity. Unit C was separated from the other buildings throughout the building by a partition wall and traverse. A central court, C7, in this section was surrounded by rooms similar to private houses. This was the earthly dwelling place of the goddess. A waterproof trough with bitumen was provided for ritual washing in the inner court, accessible from the entrance, C1. A temple, a sacral space, could only be entered once the priest had purified himself. A platform probably served as a bed for the goddess in the cellar, room C28, the temple's inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies. In the same building as Ningal's rooms were the kitchen, 
which took up much space but was responsible for feeding all the human and divine inmates of the Gipar. A traverse passage connected the kitchen and the goddess's private living quarters with the rest of the building. A wide corridor separates Unit B from Unit A. In the kitchen there was a dining room, B12. On both sides of the room were antechambers, which obviously added to the importance of the room. Several doorways led into this room, and the inscriptions suggest that this room contained the Urinu symbols of the gods. These were god-related standards. Archaeologists have discovered several empty tombs in the cemetery next to the dining room, where many on priestesses who lived in the Gipar were buried. According to the texts, two deceased and priestesses were provided with regular offerings at the offering place, including cheese, ghee, dates and libations. Each month, the deceased on priestesses had to be remembered, and flour and drink offerings had to be provided, just like any other deceased person. After death, on priestesses had no children to care for, so the next generation performed this service. The Priestess's private rooms were located in Unit A on the north side of the Gipar. A central courtyard, A6, was built around a domestic dwelling. It was here in this place where the On Priestess prayed for the health and well-being of her father, the king, that she would pray for her father's ancestors, the Priestess. There were also the statues of the deceased kings of Ur, A19, and probably a statue of Dargan, the personal god of Ur's royal family. In Middle Mesopotamia, where Ur's dynasties originated, the Amorites worshipped Dargan. Priestesses in the second millennium can be seen in several images discovered. In addition to the golden fillet worn on the head of the ritual flounced mantle, their clothing resembles Enheduanna and other Enpriestesses from the third millennium. Enanatuma, daughter of Imdagan, who lived in the Gipa as an Enpriestess around 1950 BC, provided us with an example. She was dressed in the Kaunaki's garment and seated on a high seat, fitting for an N. The three female heads, excavated near temples in Ur and Asur at the beginning of the second millennium, are of such charisma, despite their small size, that we may consider them depictions of on priestesses. Although not all of them wear their hair loose on their shoulders like the statue of Enanatuma, they often wear golden fillets around their heads and dog collars around their necks. Priestess installations were public events, and the king named the year they took place after the ceremony. A new king would not dare remove an on-priestess, even if she had been installed by a predecessor who had been dethroned. Despite her father's defeat and deposition by Lhasa, Inanatuma retained the post. There is a seal with an inscription from a scribe that shows that a priestess of En called Mei Enlil, daughter of King Ulgi, followed a ritual named Enirziana. She had at her disposal a scribe named Girinea, a seal which shows an enthroned god holding up a curved saber with a curved blade has survived despite being lost. Two names on the seal are mentioned in one breath, Enirziana, En of Nana, Girinea, scribe, and Hesag, her servant. Aradzu, her his servant, is the end of the inscription in this presentation scene, which shows the servant being received by his master or mistress in the audience. In this period, the king ordered the same presentation scenes. However, it was not a god who was enthroned, but the king himself. There was no longer an office or residence for the On Priestess during the old Babylonian period. After the downfall of the third dynasty of Ur, succeeding dynasties attempted to maintain the high status of the On Priestess. However, 
the centralized bureaucracy crumbled under the pressure of ceaseless warfare and famine, and the city of Ur was destroyed. The next dynasty, settling in the town of Lhasa, restored the office of the On Priestess, carrying on the tradition of the Gipa. Lhasa's kings did not appoint daughters as En Priestesses, but their sister, Enanidu, was En adorned by An. In 1763 BC, King Hammurabi of Babylon invaded and destroyed the city, and instead of tracing their descent back to Sumerian gods, the Amorite kings reverted to their divine ancestors. This princess was the last En Priestess to enter the Gipar. A deed makes up a priestess of Enenenedu, the king of Lhasa's sister, left an inscription on a clay cone that records her enship. She included many peculiarities in a text containing a record of her enship, partly written in Sumerian. The Gipar had deteriorated over time, with signs of decay and neglect everywhere. A breach had been made in the protective wall, and weeds were growing everywhere. She rebuilt the complex and arranged for a wall to surround the graveyard of the dead on priestesses and an important watchtower. Because the place was no longer cleaned, she provided the necessary cleaning services, while also taking care of the purification of the burial room, which had been neglected for too long. The on priestess was in charge of managing Gipars and surrounding lands. Ningal, the divine primary occupant of Ur's Gipar, attended the funeral cults of her dead forerunners. The following lines describe how Enanedu commissioned a statue, presumably of Ningal, for the Gipar, and she enumerates the offerings of beer, flour, bread and meat. Describes how Ningal and Nana's clothes and jewellery fit their divinity. In addition, she mentions the bed, which we will discuss later. An unpriestess's tenure in the office needs to be determined. A list of offerings mentions Ensakiag and Enanedu, two priestesses, on which there is information about them. According to estimates, En priestesses lived very long lives in the Gipa. George Morhen assumes that a younger consort would replace an old En priestess in her position, but this assumption is unsupported. Due to their isolated way of life, En priestesses were not often replaced and frequently grew very old since they were not exposed to childbirth risks and infectious diseases. Priestesses were selected by the god through a sign on the livers of sacrificed kids or lambs. There followed a lengthy and complicated ritual for entering the Gipar. The hymn appears to have been composed by Enheduanna, and the inauguration begins in the Temple of Nana. A heavily damaged text was found that could have been an inauguration ceremony for the En priestess of the moon god, Nana. Interestingly, the text mentions the moon god's ziggurat and the Ulu rites, literally hand-washing, which would fit the Enship. Perhaps at this moment, the new en priestess received her cultic name, a matter of utmost importance in ancient times, since names were used to identify individuals. Enheduanna's name appears four times in the hymn, each referring to a different aspect of her role. The first time was when she was elevated to the status of enship. The second was when she was incarnated as Ningal, Enheduanna, the holy spouse of the moon god. And the third was during the sacred marriage ritual. Additionally, she mentioned her cultic functions, such as grinding groats to prepare offerings. A priestess praises Nana and Ningal, the wives of her master, in a song. Ningal is addressed by Enheduanna as the true woman of Nana, Sal Nunuz, Zi de Nana, the same name Enheduanna used for herself. It is said in Enheduanna's hymn that the M.E. in the Gipar has been established. Also praised in this hymn is Enheduanna herself, 
who is exalted in heaven, and the hymn continues with rites related to the holy marriage ceremony. According to the hymn, Enheduana enters the bedroom, and the man desires her beauty. As ends Miller, she grinds the barley for his offerings and knows how to do it. Also, Enheduana mentions the masabu basket carried by the en-priestess in Ninmesara. In response to the request of the gudu priest, purification priest, he brought the masabu basket, proclaimed the asila, rejoicing acclaim, beautified the temple, supported it, and maintained holy ablutions. May she, viz Enheduana, restore Ningal's heart to its original position, O Ningal, my Enheduana. From the text we understand that the Masabu basket was a winnowing basket made of silver, copper, and woven rushes, sometimes holding fish, dates, and other fruits. Asila is a song of rejoicing or acclamation mentioned twice by the On Priestess when she mentions carrying the Masabu basket. On the occasion of the inauguration of a new En Priestess, the hymn gives the faint impression of an ancient ritual. Enheduana meticulously followed this ritual in later times. The moon god's worldly consort was En, the priestess of Ur. Despite her enigmatic quality, modern researchers struggle to comprehend how these religious practices were performed and how they embodied his heavenly spouse. On priestesses such as Enanapada and Enanedu appear to be women with pure loins, fit for enship, and Enheduana claims to be the true woman of Nana. These priestesses did not join a worldly marriage, but dedicated themselves to a heavenly one. The marital relationship should be viewed in the same way that nuns regarded themselves as brides of Christ during the Middle Ages and later in European history. There was a strong sense of relatedness between all on priestesses and the heavenly spouse of their temple god. As they were her human substitutes, one may wonder if these priestesses played the goddess's role in the holy marriage ceremony, when the god and goddess surrendered themselves to lovemaking on the bed in the temple, surrounded by sweet-smelling grasses, resulting in the land blossoming with fertility. As well as the priests, the king participated intensely in this ritual, as many songs of praise indicate. Indeed, the myth of Enmakar explicitly describes the king sharing his bed with the goddess Inanna. As a historical memory of the king's encounter with the goddess Inanna, the image on the Uruk vase should be interpreted as such. King Dumuzi was played by the king, but it is harder to identify who played Inanna, the young mortal lover of Dumuzi. Since she was the consort of the moon god and not the king, the end priestess could not have participated in the sacred marriage rite between the king and the goddess Inanna. Additionally, because she was the king's daughter, the end priestess could not conduct weddings with her father since this would be incest, which was unknown in Mesopotamia, unlike in Egypt during the pharaoh's time. Therefore, we do not know how the sacred marriage was celebrated, and the Sumerians never asked nor answered this question. For them, it was simply a ritual with benevolent implications. The participants were responsible for how this mystery was performed, and uninitiated people were not permitted to know the secret law. Enheduana's position seemed familiar at the time, as high priestesses held the top positions in many temples during the reign of King Sargon of Akkad and the Sumerian period before it. Omen of Naditum Women's convents linked to temples of high gods appeared in Mesopotamia during the first half of the second millennium, and wealthy families sent their daughters there. One of the most famous cloisters was E2 Baba, the White House, linked to the sun god Samas's temple. Sippar is located in the Middle East. According to Rivka Harris, 
About 200 women lived in this convent in Sippar. According to some scholars, the name Naditum may have been derived from the Akkadian word Nadum, which means to lie fallow. She was not allowed to have children or sexual relations, so she lay fallow. But it seems more likely that the word Naditum comes from the verb Nadanum, meaning to give or to marry, so she was in this sense married, or given as a consort to her heavenly husband. A wall enclosed the compound in Sipar, home to the Naditum women. It was called a closed house, Gagia, Akkadian, Gagum, where they lived with servants and enslaved people, owning or renting separate houses. Besides the female weavers and cooks, gate officials and doorkeepers, as well as the judge of the Gagum and other personnel employed by the cloister, the buildings of the Gagum's officials were also located inside this enclosure. Among the streets in the cloister compound were the main street and a small arable plot where sesame was grown. In addition to a granary, the Gagum included an administrative building that may have held the temple's archives. During the early period, the Nadiatum women themselves held the office of steward of the Nadiatum, which was responsible for administrating the Gagum. According to Rivka Harris, some female scribes lived in Sippar, and the names of some of them have been retrieved. Later, this position was exclusively occupied by men, and no more than one female scribe was in charge at any given time. A tablet in the archive of the cloister of Sippar records the expenses incurred by the cloister on the admission of a girl as a naditum at the age she would otherwise be expected to marry. The entrant to whom the tablet referred was Awat Aja, the daughter of Warad Ira, and her brother led her there. It also lists the expenses incurred by the brother's caravan, which transported Awat Aja to the cloister, including fish, oil, silver coins, a belt and rings. Since these entries describe betrothal gifts the cloister paid for, we can assume that the girl's father was deceased. Other tablets mention the cost to the cloister for the three days of celebrations dedicated to the sun god Ama, including an offering in honor of deceased Naditum women. The entry of a new Naditum was bound up with a religious festival, and the text mentions the expenditure of one three shekel of silver for beer for the enslaved women. In the second millennium, several upper-class families in Mesopotamia accumulated wealth and property for the first time. Their parents sent these women to a cloister to remain childless for the rest of their lives for economic reasons. To maintain the estate, they did not continuously marry off a daughter, but allowed her to enter the cloister. According to Harris, a married girl took her dowry from her family. During her life, an Aditam's dowry belonged to her, but after her death, it was returned to her brothers, and a betrothal present or bridal present was given to the prospective medium's parents, just as it would have been given to the prospective bride-to-be. There was even a chance that the Naditum could improve the family's fortune to some extent, and it was an attractive idea to have a family member close to a vital god and pray daily for her well-being in his presence. The daughter of Zimri Lim, king of Mari, writes to her father, I pray for him every day in the temple of Amma. Is it not I who pray for your father's house? In addition, royal heirs could be sent to the temple to devote their lives to a god, usually to prevent another claimant to the throne or a usurper from killing them. Families must have abandoned Naditum women often, leaving them to their fate. Aja writes to her mother, Mari's queen, as follows, I am the princess of a king, the wife of a king. They treat sound soldiers taken as booty, 
regardless of the tablets with which you and your husband forced me into the cloister. I hope you treat me well then. She complains to her mother in another letter. I cry all the time. One enslaved person had to die last year after you sent me two female consorts. Two more enslaved women have been brought to me. One died. Your father's house prays through me. Why do I not receive provisions? I have not received any money or oil from them. Among the Naditum women of Sippar, the second wife was Aja, the heavenly spouse of the sun god Ama. Aja was the mistress of the Naditum, who had entered the family of the sun god as a Naditum, and they had a special relationship. The choice of cultic names given to the Naditum women when they entered the cloister illustrates this point. The goddess's name, Aya, is often used as part of a name. For example, Awat Aja, word of Aja, Aja Belet Matim, lady of the land, Aja Damkat, Aja is good, Aja Kuzub Matim, Aja the allure of the land, Aja Talik, Aja walks, Amat Aja, servant Aja, Belti Aja, my mistress Aja, and Eristi Aja, called by Aja. There are more than 20 names that Harris has found. While Naditum women in Sippar lived mostly isolated from the rest of the world, they also kept in touch with their families, friends and commercial agents. We learn from the preserved tablets that they may have received visitors, as Harris deduces from a letter from Awat Aja to her brother. The last time I saw you, I rejoiced as much as when I first entered the cloister and saw my lady's face, Aja. There are few reports about the Naditum being subject to religious obligations. According to Harris, one Naditum woman disinherited her adopted daughter for not providing clothing, ointment and pekitum offerings. A pekitum offering was required on unique festivals, but no special rites existed. It was sometimes the family's responsibility to pay these offerings or use the proceeds from personal property. Often the women lived in the cloister for 25 to 55 years before they died. Like the unpriestesses of Ur, the Naditum women of Sippar were protected from contagious diseases and the risk of giving birth due to their isolated lifestyle. Despite the requirement that Naditum women lead chaste lives, several adoption agreements in Sippar indicate that some bore children. A certain Hutum delivered her baby to her brother for adoption, but decided to nurse the baby herself. She is paid an allowance in advance for three years to be able to do so. According to the contracts, two other Naditum women gave their children to married couples to raise as their own, and it is not apparent from the contracts that are giving birth adversely affected their status as Naditum. The famous Naditum Iltani was the sister of King Hammurabi of Babylon. In addition to being rich, she became an actual princess, owing extensive property, which she exploited with the help of supervisors, borrowing interest and hiring enslaved people. A few articles in the Codex of Hammurabi protect the legal position of temple women. According to these laws, Ugbabtums, Naditums and Secretums may dispose of their dowries after their father has passed away, and their brothers must respect their right to access the property, even though it belongs to her brothers. According to Article 179 of the Codex, women living outside a cloister and who have not inherited any dowry from their father are entitled to one share of the wealth of their father's house as long as they live. These women obviously had less protection from their families because they did not live in cloisters or had dowries. However, brothers are always in charge of the dowry, and it is abundantly clear from the written records 
that temple women frequently suffered neglect from their families, so Hammurabi thought it necessary to provide for their legal protection. Naditam families were sometimes supportive and loyal. Only some women were wealthy. Despite the convent looking after their interests, Naditam women received no financial support from the temple. Several tablets written by Naditam women reveal their panic and fear as they urgently plead with their families to support them and send grain as a religious offering, for example. Time and again, the kings felt obligated to take action to alleviate the Naditam's precarious situation, despite the protective paragraphs of the Codex of Hammurabi. A Naditam, for instance, was not required to stay in the cloister if her family no longer supported her, as stated by King Amunluna, the successor of Hammurabi. Additionally, he promulgated a law prohibiting Naditams from being held responsible for their parents' debts or other obligations. Many younger Naditams from the cloister or family members adopted enslaved people and in the contract agreed that the enslaved people would be freed after they died. As in the case of Lamassi, who fell seriously ill and had no one to care for her, the Gagum settled the affairs of Naditams, living in challenging circumstances. As part of the Gagum's arrangement, Lamassi adopted Husalatum because he would care for her in old age and during her illness. Many Naditam women arranged to adopt a son or daughter who could care for them in their old age if their families abandoned their responsibilities. The tablets excavated in the temple compound of Sippar give us a glimpse of how these Naditam women participated in various ways in the economic life of the time. They entered into contracts by selling their houses, landed property, or enslaved people and lending money or grain at interest. Sometimes they cooperated with their father or brothers in increasing the family capital, but they regularly operated alone or in partnership with another Naditum woman. Some wealthy women had an administrative staff responsible for their properties, while others earned money from spinning and weaving wool. A tablet was inscribed with the contract of a Naditum woman, who purchased an enslaved person from the income she made from spinning. After Hammurabi's time, the Naditam women and the economic activities they were engaged in disappeared.